Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real dialogues, not traditional interviews, with the amazing people who are making our world a different place. And on today's episode, one of my favorite people, one of the smartest guys in the technology industry, Bob Evans. We're sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about my new marketing podcast. It's a uh, completely different or at least a lot different than this one. It's short, one topic. Uh, Most episodes are uh, under 15 minutes and um, really focused on the mindset and strategies for winning. And in particular, you might like episode number two, the 10 attributes of legendary marketing. Check out lockhead.com slash podcasts or listen to Lockhead on Marketing on any major podcast platform. All right, today uh, we get to hang out with one of my favorite people, one of the smartest guys I know. He's a technology thought leader, a communications guru. His name is Bob Evans. Uh, I've known Bob for longer than I'd like to admit. And uh, what I've always loved about my conversation with Bob, heading back to when he was, a, a, you know, one of the head ding-dongs at Information Week, is he and I would always have great conversations about what's going on in the tech industry and uh, what that means. And so on this episode, we dig into, in specific, how Microsoft is transforming themselves, how they became a trillion dollar with a T category king, which is an incredibly surprising outcome, at least from where I sit. And uh, most importantly, Bob helps uh, pop the hood open on what are the remarkable things we can learn from this turnaround that may have implications for us in our businesses, in our careers. We also uh, pay special attention to the conversation we have around why every software company or why every company, frankly, is turning into a software company. Uh, Go to Lockhead.com for more on Bob. Also want to let you know he's got one of my favorite podcasts called Cloud Wars Live. And once a month, I do a session with him on his podcast called Lockhead on Different that you might also check out. Now, hey ho, let's go. And so you just sent me this love note it says Microsoft generated cloud revenue of 11 billion in the quarter ending June 30. Yeah. By this time next year, it's cloud business will be well over 50 billion. And Chris, yeah, I thought this is interesting for a few reasons. One in the conversation with you, I recall, I believe at, at Mercury when you guys were doing the flip from license to subscription and you said you know part of it is a long slow slog with wall street you know you got those people you got customers you got employees to deal with and the salespeople, and everybody in between and also there's this sort of massive industry model shift that's fun in a way then with microsoft this company right like we're saying that it wasn't that many years ago they were somewhere between a joke and irrelevant a big but Nothing new has come out of there. So one of the things that I thought was so interesting about this is just how quickly this has happened. And I think it should be inspiration for all sorts of businesses, right? You are limited not by your competitive set, not by how much money you have, all this stuff. You're limited by you know what your dreams are and your ambitions are. And I think that Della came in and said, we're spending too much time chasing too many internally driven dreams and not enough time saying, what are those people out there who are going to give us money? What are they dreaming about? What do they need to have happen? And he had the force of will to sort of drive these changes inside the company and what it made, how it presents itself. Little things, Chris, like they massively restructured their sales organization and got rid of, some people estimate as much as 30 or 40% of their sales team who had, by historic measures, been performing just fine. But they were in situations where customers, we're doing things for the first time. And if the salesperson isn't able to answer some questions about that, the salesperson can't lead them along to the next thing and, and be of value there. So they infused the sales organization with people that they said most of them could be writing code at Microsoft, but they've got the outlook and the personality also to be salespeople. So the engagements with customers are much more fruitful. And I think it's one of the reasons why they've hit these staggering numbers. So, uh, 
anyway, I didn't mean to go on and on like that. I just think it's a phenomenon that lots of people in lots of different industries, lots of businesses can learn from here. You can come back. You can change. You can become something that other people say you'll never be and defy history. Amen. Hallelujah. Pastor. But here's the thing that it sits inside of for me. So I listen to everything you're saying and I'm going, I think that's right. I think this guy, Satya Nadella, is unbelievable. And because all this sits in the context of the following. Microsoft, a company we all, myself included, I was at the front of the pack uh, criticizing Microsoft. They're a trillion-dollar market cap company. Microsoft is worth more than, let me just double-check. I'm pretty sure they're still worth more than Apple. Yeah. So uh, who would it look, there's no, there's nobody that would have thought 10 years ago that Microsoft would be the most valuable company on the planet. Five, five years ago, three, yeah, four. Five, yeah. yeah. I'm just looking Apple right now anyway is 960. So they're, I mean, they're very close, but still hard to believe. Chris, a couple other things. Um, one is, uh, you know, Microsoft deservedly so gets a lot of credit for some of the dynamic new technology they brought. And if it isn't always the greatest, most wondrous thing in the world, it's very good, very solid. And they've got more of it with no gaps in their lineup. And rightfully, they deserve that credit. I think they've been just as good, maybe even better and more inspired on their go-to-market side of things. So the, the Salesforce turnover that we chatted about a minute ago, one of the other things is they now a year and a half or so ago, they did a couple pilots. Now it's a big growing part of their business, right? Where a big customer develops some interesting technology around Azure. And then that big customer might say, hey, you know what? I could probably sell this to some people on the outside. So Microsoft's sales organization, to the degree the customer wants, helps them sell it. So the customer becomes a partner, becomes a vendor, and onward and off they go. One of the other corollaries of that, Chris, is, you know, for 40 years, Microsoft has done a great job in its ecosystem or channel partners, right? And the, the classic model in the tech industry is we make it, the partners sell it. Well, over the last couple of years, again, some of these partners have created some very interesting software solutions around Azure. So now, if partners create a, a unique, valuable solution or software product, Microsoft sales organization will sell it. So you've got one of the, perhaps the most valuable company on earth willing to say the way we've always done it isn't the way into the future. We'll do some of that, but still I'll be willing, I'll turn my organization into your sales team if you want, if that's the right thing for us and for our customers and everybody in between. So they are doing stuff that defies anybody's prediction or scope or the way they look at things and inspire and, and imagine where they can be. And that's, I think, the magic that Mandel has brought to them. I, I had no idea they had so much innovation on the business model and sales organization side. I, I just want to underscore, make sure I, I hear what you're telling me. So they have a proactive strategy, Bob, to look at cool shit that customers are doing with Azure or maybe even more broadly, Microsoft technology, but Azure, you'll tell me. And if a customer has something that either the salesperson or the customer thinks could be commercialized into a product, Microsoft will help them do that. And then they will sell that product in partnership with the customer, transforming the customer from a buyer into both a customer and a essentially ISV partner. And, and frankly, with Microsoft selling it, they're not only an ISV, they're an OEM. Is that what you just told me? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And one of the examples of that, Chris, is with Kroger, one of the largest grocery store chains in the world. Um, Kroger has, uh, you know, very aggressively and boldly, assertively said, we're always going to be a grocer. We would like to think we're going to be a world-class grocer, but we're also becoming a software company. Now, everybody says that to some degree or another, and I, I think it's true in most of the cases where people are saying that, but Kroger's intention is to sell software, not only for its own internal use, but to sell to other retailers. And Microsoft has partnered with them on this. And one of the things that they find then is right, that this looming idea these days of people who buy stuff don't just want the stuff 
that you're selling. They want what you know. And Microsoft, with its experiences with all sorts of companies, could be able to be that one whispering in Kroger's ear, hey, you know what? This is something that seems to be underserved or over here. So, yes, they've entirely flipped that model upside down. And I think that flexibility at the scale of $125 billion in revenue and close to a trillion dollars in market cap. No, over a quite trillion stunning. dollars. Yeah. It's yeah. a trillion, I think they said, I think uh, Yahoo Finance said it's a trillion six hundred million. However, you, I don't even know how you say that. <laughs> <laughs> a trillion and some change. A trillion and some Scooby Snacks. Six hundred million Six hundred Scooby Snacks. Yeah, I, that's what I think this says because it says 1.06T. So. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm guessing the zero is 600 million. That's just the Scooby Snacks. But I mean, holy shit. And here's the other thing I wanted to get your comment on. You know, I was so lucky to spend some time with Mike Maples Sr. Yeah. And he was, you remember him, of course. Yeah. And, and he was the guy that sort of is, is largely responsible at the executive level for pulling off Microsoft Office. I mean, look, you and I remember there was a point in time when the word processor was a separate category and the spreadsheet was a separate category and presentation software was a separate category, all dominated by category kings and queens, right? And Microsoft had second tier products in all of those spaces. And then they went, aha, what if the value is not in the actual specific product, but in the product's ability to share shit and work easily and have a similar UX? And that insight, of course, led to Microsoft Office. And I would, I would argue Microsoft Office is one of the greatest, you know, category domination plays in the history of business. Now, I'm going somewhere, Bob, and I have a question. So stay with me. <laughs> the number of companies in the technology industry, and re, I think you can look outside technology, that remain a category queen through major platform shifts is like hard to think about, right? Yeah. And so do any of the bug, buggy whip manufacturers make the shift to the automobile? Uh, none that I'm aware of, right? And so it's, it's easy to go, well, yeah, duh, of course you'd move office to the cloud. But the number of companies that actually, so when there's these platform shifts, um, there are opportunities for new category kings and queens to emerge. You know, ServiceNow is a great example, right? Started by Fred Luddy. Well, why did he know to do ServiceNow? Because he was the founder of Peregrine, and Peregrine was a help desk company, and he sold that company to HP, and he knew HP wasn't going to move it to the cloud. So he started a purpose-built cloud help desk company, which morphs over time into ServiceNow, right? And they've done a great job of recapturing what used to be the help desk market and reforming it into this, whatever the new thing they're calling it is. Anyway, my point is, Fred knew that HP wasn't going to do that with Peregrine because doing that might seem obvious. It's really hard. And so here's my question. How did Microsoft summon the, 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 the courage to actually make the shift to Office in the cloud and Office as a subscription? Uh, Chris, let me take a whack at that. But um, before I touch on that too, you know, we, we mentioned the uh, trillion dollars and change market cap for Microsoft. Um, ServiceNow, this year, calendar 19, will probably do three and a half billion dollars in revenue. Their market cap today is about $55 billion. So your, your little uh, anecdote there about Fred Luddy and what he did and what he built, uh, it's been handsomely rewarded by a company going off into that white space in between the other ways of doing things, getting to the cloud, establishing that model, and now they talk about the opportunity to help set up digital workflows that way. And I think what happened at Microsoft, right, so often... So I just want to put a fine point on it. Yeah, all yeah. the help desk vendors, all the client server help desk vendors, of which Fred started one, Remedy was the category king, he was Peregrine, there was a bunch of others. None of them makes the move to the cloud. Fred knows that as an entrepreneur, so he starts ServiceNow. It, it could have been very easy to say, you know what, this platform shift to the cloud was going to be Google's opening to make Google Docs overtake Microsoft Office, right? Because there's a snowball chance in hell they're going to make the platform shift. And to your point, 
from a business model perspective, going from selling something and collecting a little maintenance off of it to, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is, 50 bucks a year, 150 bucks a year, whatever it is, a charge over a monthly basis, that's a whole other thing, right? And there's a whole bunch of reasons with Wall Street we could talk about why that is incredibly painful because you're going to get you're going to get tr- crushed in this trough because of the way revenue gets recognized. And anyway, so my point is there are business model reasons, there are technology reasons, um, and, and and probably a bunch of others that suggest that most companies never get this right. And Microsoft did in a way that um, meant. Google Docs did not have the opening that ServiceNow, by way of comparison, did. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by your perspective on what they did to make that true. Well, Chris, a couple of things. One is, uh, I think, if you look at the different impacts Nadella has had at Microsoft, one of the major ones has been he's, he's broken up the tribalism. He's broken up the internally driven, you know, compete against each other, not to have a better outcome for customers, but to get more budget, to get more hires, to be seen, you know, near to top brass, what, you know, whatever that silliness is. And, you know, there's a little bit of that properly managed can be healthy, but it's got to be counterbalanced these days by a much different view. And Nadella just sort of put all the crap inside Microsoft into a blender, put it on liquefy, and then said, all right, let's pour this out now into what it should be instead of what it has been. So the office guys had to understand that their day of being sort of the, the you know, the kings and queens of, of the Microsoft empire over. And they had to get in line and be subservient to the needs of customers. So the second point of three, Chris, Nadella has been at the company now close to 30 years. And a classic turnaround strategy is, hey, you get a company that was where Microsoft was a few years ago, you must bring in an outsider, right? And have them tear it up because clearly everybody in there is poisoned. But somehow between Gates and the board and maybe Ballmer had some influence, they felt this guy from deep down inside the company could do this. And he had been the cloud champion screaming, ranting, raving inside the company to move in this direction of the cloud. So he becomes CEO Suddenly, he's got the opportunity now to get this thing office hypercharged up into the cloud, and people who didn't like that are gone. They were out. This was not something like, well, you know, we've got to let people feel their way and be comfortable. No, it was the customers are demanding this. And third point, Chris, on that is I do think it is uh, somewhere between pathetic and hilarious when you hear people on the outside criticize Microsoft for saying, well, $40 billion cloud business, but, you know, a big chunk of that is, you know, office in the cloud. That's not really cloud. Well, that's just such a bunch of nonsense because you just see this all the time. And they, uh, Nadella and the CFO Amy Hood talked about this on Thursday in the conference call. They said Office 65 and Micro 6. 365 are becoming incredible high-speed on-ramps to Azure for lots and lots of businesses that said, I need to have Office 365 in the cloud. I need to have Microsoft 365 in the cloud, Windows and so forth like that. And all of a sudden, the entree to Azure and bigger and bigger and bigger deals happened. So he took it from being uh, organizational liability to being a great asset. He cut down the time at which the company would naturally have you know, uh, reluctantly made this move. And third thing, he turned what had been a negative into a big positive by saying, this is going to accelerate everything we do because everything we do is now oriented around the customer instead of our internal silos of uh, product islands. The other thing, thank you. I I, I appreciate that analysis because you watch it way more closely than I do. The the other thing I, I, I get the sense of is he slash they are taking uh, the long game view. Um, And so, for example, I I think a thing that was really hard for companies and actually as much as I've said bad things about SAP and I sure don't like them, (laughs) um, but I think they deserve credit for this as well. Because what happens from a Wall Street perspective is you take a sale, which today most people call bookings, and there's essentially two ways to recognize it. When you sell it to the customer and they own it, they take ownership of it. And from an accounting perspective, you recognize it as revenue immediately. 
So generally within the quarter that it takes place. Um, and, you know, let's say, let's say to make it super simple because grade three math was the hardest 12 years of my life. Um, let's say it's a $12 million annual deal or it's a $12 million deal, right? So you take that $12 million, you do it in Q1 and you recognize it as such. If it's an annual subscription, same price, it's just over, over time. Let's just say it's a year to make it super simple. It's a million bucks a month. So you take essentially $12 million worth of revenue and you turn it into um, uh, $3 million worth of revenue in that quarter. You follow me? Yep. Well, so as you do this, it's, and, then, and then you have this, this thing on your balance sheet called deferred revenue, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that starts to build. So as, you're, as you go through this change, your recognizable revenue in the immediate term starts to plummet. And your uh, revenue that gets recognized over time in this bucket, your accounting bucket called deferred revenue starts to grow. But as this happens, what it looks like to the untrained eye is your revenue is cratering, right? So then you got to educate the world into this thing called revenue plus change and deferred. Now, all of a sudden you're having a, what you're talking about, Willis conversation. (laughs) And so it's very confusing. And having been on the front end of this thing, um, you know, we were a very early pioneer in this, right? And it ended up being a fuck job because we were 60, 40. And what we all learned, of course, as an industry is for the most part, and Microsoft being a little bit different because they have so much revenue, maybe it's a little easier, but I, maybe it's not, I don't know. But what I'm saying is for the most part, everybody's gone to a 100% subscription model and the number of hybrid companies like we were back in the Mercury days, you know, we took all the arrows, people figured out you can't really do that. And so they're either a subscription company or they're not. And you know, some people have exceptions, and rah, 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 rah. but for the most part, Software companies have moved to subscription. And so my point in all of that is I think it's indicative of them committing to the long game because they took stock pressure pain in the near term as they were going through that trough and trying to educate people to look at their financials in this whole new way. Well, Chris, I know as you've uh, stayed close to the software industry as uh, an advisor, coach, author, podcaster, and, and so on. Um, it, it clearly, there's a lot of the, the young com- younger companies coming in doing this, you know, all cloud. It's interesting, though, that, um, you know, three or four of the big legacy guys, you call them that, Microsoft, Oracle, SAP in particular, IBM, certainly in that camp, but I think less so in, in some of the like application space, they're finding that customers are saying, I love you for the cloud stuff you're doing, but I also love you because you can also connect back to my old world of the on-premise thing. So that the hybrid thing comes up. So in some ways, it's wonderful that uh, Salesforce, Workday, and some of these other, you know, ServiceNow, these other terrific cloud-only companies, cloud-native companies can do what they do, but there's a huge value among customers for the... Uh, isn't it funny? 40, 45 year old companies are old now. You know, they're, they're ancient. They're the, the silverbacks, yeah. but that they can cut both ways. And I think it's again, uh, something that the Microsoft exec brought up on the earnings call, their on-premise software business was up 5% because there's still customers that need to balance yeah. directions. Ellison's called it the decade of coexistence. Mm. Well, the interesting thing, if you look at it from a more of an infrastructure point of view, maybe less of an apps point of view, if you look at storage, if you look at uh, uh, compute power, i.e. we used to call them servers, um, uh, bandwidth, of course, um, for the most part, uh, the big players are hybrid, right? There are very few major banks who've outsourced their entire data center infrastructure. I, 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 I mean... It's, they're just not going to do that. I'm not saying they aren't going to do more and more. And, you know, when a company like Netflix goes to AWS, you go, holy shit, yeah. uh, that's something else going on over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but but even with that, you're, there's going to be many companies for probably decades who are hybrid cloud. 
Yeah. And they'll try to ride, you know, both of those possibilities. And Chris, one of the other things you'll see with some of these big companies that's coming along here and mid-sized companies as well. The last point that, and I don't mean Microsoft's the only company doing this, but you know, in a couple of minutes ago, we talked about that thing, some of their go to model, their business stuff. It's also just in some simple ways, right? What you have become, you know, a master at here of just communicating, talking, talking to the world about things that on everybody's mind, but how do you make that particularly interesting, relevant, or riveting for somebody here? So it's the way Microsoft talks about some stuff. So uh, 2013, I think, the Accenture's big theme for the year 2013 was uh, every company is a digital company. So this is not a new idea, right? Clearly, it's been around for a while. But now Nadella brought out this thing uh, last week where he talks about the citizen developer movement, which is, you know, businesses now starting to become software companies, creating their own stuff. And he says, Nadella says that in the next five years, 500 million new applications will be created, which is far more than have been created in the, the 40 years you know, preceding that. And he said this will be led by the citizen developer movement. So if it's true then that that can happen, then is this the realization that every company becomes a software company? And Chris, this uh, thing he said from a uh, detail from LinkedIn is that for the first time ever, non-tech companies are hiring more developers than tech companies are hiring. So yeah. it, it, the, the world is getting turned upside down a little bit here. It's, it's a fascinating insight around the explosion of uh, app developers. And look, A, he knows a thousand times more about this than I do. So I would listen to him way before I'd listen to me. But the, 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 the parallel or the sort of dot connecting that I do in my head is um, if you look at what's happened in media, we have, we have thousands more choices over time, right? You start off with radio and there's only a couple of radio stations and then you move to TV and then TV gets to cable and then we get satellite radio and on and on and on. Today we have Hulu and Netflix and yada, yada, yada. There are more media choices and, you know, what I would call a niche NATO of different niches and different brands that have emerged in media. Then you look at what's happened in publishing and you look at blogs and self-publishing. And what has that meant to the creation uh, or to the, the massive explosion and increase of written content to consume, whether it's technically a book or not. You look at primarily things like Instagram and, and the fact that the smartphones have cameras. Well, now there's a massive explosion in citizen photographers, many of whom are wonderful. And I, I, of all the social media th uh, shit, I, I think I like Instagram the best because, you, you know, you got, I, you know, I got a feed full of my friends and people I like and Mustangs and, you know, there's guys surfing and shit. It's like just fun shit to look at when you're killing a little time waiting for something or whatever. And so, um, so explosion in photography. And then you look at you and I, our citizen media companies, podcasts and bloggers and websites, oh my, and all this shit, right? And, and we're citizen media companies that need an honor. We can compete pretty aggressively um, with big media, with government-funded media, NPR, and with NBC and ABC and blah, blah, yada, 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 right? Um, you can come out of nowhere and beat these guys in the face if you could, right? And you know what you're doing, ha-ha. <laughs> Not that I have any experience. <laughs> no, no. Sometimes I've got to say shit. And so, so what's my point? If you look in all these other domains, what he's describing in software has happened in a lot of other domains. It used to be photography was, you had to be a professional photographer, right? Yeah. Now you can be a photographer with a million people following your work every day on Instagram just because you're legendary and you figured out how to do some good marketing. Mm -hmm. And so if what's going to happen in um, software development is what happened in photography or blogging or podcasting or any of these other examples. He's probably fucking right. Yeah. Cause you used to be, have to be a professional to produce a photograph like that. Yeah. Chris, two, two things I'd like to um, offer up in reply to that. One is uh, there was a guy, he was sort of chief technology officer, head of innovation for several years at SAP. 
Um, this is several years ago. His name is Vishal Sika. And Vishal came up with this idea once that I thought was brilliant. He said, what's really happening as we move you know, to full speed into the digital world is, he said, the right way to think about it is we are, we are separating or liberating content from containers. And he said, uh, he showed a picture in this one presentation of a 3D printed flute. And they said, now, he said, bear this in mind. And then he ran this video of, I don't know the name of the uh, musical instrument company that makes flutes, but it was like a two-minute high-speed video of them crafting a flute by hand. And it was, it was incredible to see the, 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 the craft work, the expertise, you know, making all those pieces by hand, putting them together. And then, you know, you put some stuff in your 3D printer, some you put your right cartridges, push a button, and there is a, a flute. And they, play, they use that flute in a performance of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. And they had the conductor say, I won't say it was perfect, but it was pretty good. So Vishal's line there about separating content from containers, your point about the move from media, from music, photography, all these things rushing forward are examples that I think every company ought to be thinking about 24 hours a day because that's going to be the differentiator. And the second small point I wanted to make was this is one of the reasons why I think some of the big media companies are getting stomped by either citizen media companies, smaller media companies. When, you know, when I was the editor of a magazine, the, the art director would always say, uh, oh, 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 you know, we have to save space on the cover to put a credit line for the photographer. And I said, nobody cares who the photographer is. You know, why do you have to do that? Put it on the ends. No, no, no. Oh, no, you can't. Why can't you? Well, it's, it's just, it's the way things are done. The, the readers can, no, the readers don't care, but the photographer cares. So it's like, who the hell cares what the photographer wants? The photographer gets paid to do it. So it was just these, these value free value empty traditions and bullshit that got carried into the future uh and i think every business has a lot of those and it's really important for all of us pretty rigorously to look and say where is my bs factor creeping up you know when is it going to get up to you know my mouth or my nose i can't breathe anymore because of this garbage so <laughs> not that i have an opinion <laughs> i've been laughing my ass off on mute here uh, uh, bob First of all, I love when you get this animated. And second of all, this is some really big shit here. And, and there is an aha. And that is, um, you know, we had Tom Siebel on not long ago talking about yeah, digital yeah. transformation, right? And AI and shit. And he made the point in his new book um, that the next two decades are going to blow away the last 50 years, I think. And I, I think we talked about this on your podcast, right? And that yep. even admitted when in my dialogue with him that he's probably underestimating that. And as, as you and I were jamming on your podcast not too long ago here, as you start to think about it, you're like, yeah, you know what? The next 10 years might blow away the last 50 years. And so if you think about this, there's um, a niche NATO of innovation occurs when something that used to require a high level of mastery is now, um, at the at the capability that a normal person can do it pretty easily. You know, if you look at photography as an example, I used to have cameras and shit. I used to go on surf vacations and shit. Yeah. Take your camera. Do you, do you take your camera on vacation, Bob? Well, it's, it's, it's sort of a multi-purpose camera now, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like I don't have it. And I used to, I'm, yeah. I'm not, it wasn't a big camera guy or anything, but I used to have like to have a nice point and shoot. You know, but I'd spend 500 bucks or 600 bucks on yeah. a camera and I'd have, I'd have sort of a bigger one. And then I'd have this, you know, and Canon's an unbelievable company. I don't have any of that shit anymore. And then well, you put I, a fucking filter on it and all of a sudden you're Ansel Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I remember, I think you and your buddy Al Ramadan had hiked uh, some fantastic mountain trail in California. Yeah. The Pacific coast um, highway. And with the, as part of it, we didn't do the whole PCT, but part of it's this thing called the JMT, the John Muir Trail. Yeah. Which is part of the Pacific Coast Trail. You showed me a picture on your iPhone, this, what, eight years ago, six, seven, eight, ten years ago. And it was 
of, you know, I think it was either at sunrise or sunset, but anyway, that was this incredible full screen. I know the photo you mean. Yeah. And you said, can you, can you believe what we're able to do now? And before, right. You'd have that image and you had to protect the film and give the film to somebody who it was nuts. And now you can hit, you know, message, Kyra, look at what, you know, look at what we just went up to. Yeah, it's 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 that incredible. And so so getting back to uh, Nadal and his comment, if if that progression of photography is the progression we're on with software development, that's a profound change. Yeah, and Crystal, you know, you uh, you led some major disruptions within uh, different software companies within the industry. You've lived through them, in them, around them, been a big part of that. And I don't mean there's some unique, profound insight of my thought, but I've just started to think about this over the last few weeks, which is as we hear these things, every company is a software company, whether you're a grocery store or you know whatever you might be, every company is a software company. Well then, if that's true, and I think it is becoming true, what happens to the software companies? Where do they go? What do they do? What is their future? And I don't mean that you know, the grocery store is going to create an ERP and HCM suite. But um, what is the next act when the stuff, a lot of the stuff that they've been doing for a while, it doesn't become less important, but it, it's not the next thing, all right? What's, where do they go? What do they do? What happens to these companies like Oracle and Microsoft and SAP and ServiceNow and Workday? So um, I would love to hear uh, what you think about that. I think what might be going on is um, an atomization of a bunch of things, right? So if you think about your smartphone, um, and look, here's a simple example. Apple just atomized iTunes. They're like, what? All this shit in one thing makes no sense. So we're going to have Apple Podcasts, and we're going to have uh, Apple Music, and we're, we're, they're breaking it apart, right? And, and that's an example of a big piece of code that was one piece of software that's now, I don't know how many, five or four or whatever it is. Um, I think that's uh, a high level example. I think what's going on is if you look at app proliferation on smartphones to start, but now we have all these pieces of functionality that are being broken out of big pieces of functionality and run independently. And we, we have more standardization around communication protocols. We have more standardization around data to data connections independent of applications and data sources so that data, if you will, can sort of talk to data and trigger things at the data level. So for example, um, you don't need to necessarily do app integration to have the credit card reader check your credit card with it, then checks your credit, which then makes sure you can pay it. Those aren't app integrations in the way that you and I grew up thinking about app integrations. They're actually um, data talking to data, right? So now you can decouple data from applications. You can decouple and you can wrap business rules around data independent of their environment, whether the, you want, you're talking about the app or the database or the data source or whatever it is. And so now we have this data-to-data interaction world. Um, and, and so we're getting atomization and we're getting small pieces of functionality that, in, that can intuitively work together because we don't, we're not really having to worry about integration the way we used to worry about integration. So I think there's probably, I think got a long way of saying, I think there's probably a lot more atomization coming. Yeah, and Chris, the, the word you used a second ago about both atomization and integration, there's probably for uh, business customers of biotechnology, there's probably some nothing they hate more than integration, right? It's, uh, you know, relative, it has to be done. There's no avoiding that. But the actual work itself is no value. It's getting this to talk to this. So any movement that the big software companies, you know, the, the software experts, can make in simplifying that. And as you talk about it now in this age of um, robotic process automation, machine learning, AI, and, you know, deep learning, these other things like that, it is, it's madness to think that, you know, you got people sitting around trying to knit some of this stuff together when, you know, our, our friends, the machines are going to be able to do this so much better. So your data to data point, you know, speed this stuff up, find new insights. And you see those rings of interconnectivity getting bigger and broader and deeper and more important like that. So I wonder if in three, four or five years, we'll still refer to the software industry, or is that going to be like calling, you know, 
this thing in your pocket is it it's a phone but you know calling it a phone is like calling you just another guy it's just it's just not up to snuff it's a great point i i I don't know i you know there's this this notion of microservices um and so and i look i think this is all part of the niche nato um and so I don't know, it's hard to know what a software company is going to look like in five years. To your point, nobody would have thought that Microsoft would have $50 billion of revenue no. in the cloud, right? No. Um, and frankly, maybe five years ago, it was beginning to be predictable, but certainly 10 years ago, seeing Salesforce the way they are now and seeing the fact that the, essentially the whole industry has moved to the cloud or is in, in far in the process of doing it. Um, and, you know, that, those are pretty remarkable things. And so I think Siebel's probably right. The next five years, the next 10 years yeah. are going to make the last 50 look like nothing. Hey, Chris, could I um, offer one more anecdote um, about a big software company? It's been around about 40 years, Oracle. So, you know, the last few years, they, their stock has been relatively flat. Um, they have been struggling in some ways to make this big move to the cloud. They did it with some applications, a couple other things their database, but the, the big honking, uh, you know, machine inside Oracle, the Oracle database was not fully optimized for the cloud. So the last two or three years, Larry Ellison, classic thing, he's been talking, 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 you know, the autonomous database, self-driving database is going to be here and it can do stuff nobody else could do. And it, there was, you know, riveting conversation from him about it, but not a lot of results. Well, last quarter, you know, month, six weeks ago, when they announced, there it goes, bam, for the first time you saw it hit the revenue line. You know, for the first time, they were seeing significant revenue growth from this new autonomous database. So that, you know, bumped their stock up several points in one day. But the thing that I find fascinating about that, right, is not only did Ellison drive the creation of this new fully cloud optimized autonomous database but he also changed the rules of the game in the cloud he's, he's working on it you can right because you you not to get too wonky about this but right databases in the cloud were always considered part of the platform well he's his thing is i want to be in platform i'm already in applications and i want to get big in infrastructure but i'm way 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 behind in infrastructure so i'm going to change the rules of the game you want this autonomous database when there are millions of people using oracle databases that could migrate up to this new thing you want it you'll have it but it only runs on oracle infrastructure so you want this you got to have my infrastructure with it which he now says is the best infrastructure in the world. But I think it's, again, the bigger point is it's a classic Ellison game of you come into an existing situation, you think by doing stuff 2% faster, 3% cheaper is going to help you. This is part of your point. You know, you're, you're just, you're dicking around over nickels and dimes. So he comes in, change the rules of the game, so that it's no longer separate infrastructure and platform. We're going to put them together. You want it, you can have it, but it's all Oracle. And this is his attack simultaneously against both uh, AWS and Microsoft, right? Yeah. Yeah. Microsoft, who is now Oracle's buddy. As far as I know, it's the only uh, partnership they've done. So whether it's IBM trying to come into the database space or more likely Amazon and its moves to create its own databases and we're going to get out. So it's just an endlessly fascinating business. But peeling back some of the technical details, those fundamental points of uh, you know, what you talk about, category creation, strategy, you know, how you position this stuff, how you differentiate, how you get past your own set of internal restrictions out into that bigger, richer, funner world of, you know, what customers want and need and who can respond to that and deliver most quickly in a way that the future is going to reward, not just that is dictated by the past. Whew. That was a good one right there. Well, say enough stuff every once in a while, something half decent will come tumbling out. <laughs> hey, Chris, before we go, could I tell yeah. you a story? Of course. Um, I, you know, one of our uh, conversations somewhere, not necessarily a podcast, I might have mentioned this to you, but it is one of the things that really warms my heart. And um, so my dad died 26 years ago in October, but 
his birthday is at the end of July. So 26 years ago, uh, he and uh, my mom were up at their house at Lake Erie, their summer house. And I went up and I said, hey, dad, would you come with me? I need to, I need your help picking out a tool at Home Depot or something like this, which I knew he'd love. Sure. So we get in the car and we're heading over and he says, hey, this isn't really the way to Home Depot. I said, no, I, I know. But anyway, we're having a good time. So we drove over to this little... Uh, airport in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I had chartered a little plane. And this young guy, this pilot, met us, and he was a total surprise to my dad. He said, what's this? And he said, well, we're going to fly up in a plane, and we're going to see from the air all this stuff about Lake Erie and harbors and railroad lines and all this stuff that you've always wanted to see. But, you know, from the ground, we couldn't see it. So we went up, and uh, I, I will one of my treasured memories all my life will be the look on his face and laughter. Chris, one of the things he wanted was there's this industrial harbor in the town we went to, Conneaut, Ohio. And the real lines from Pittsburgh, the steel companies came in, these giant freighters in and out. And he always said, I know it comes in, but what do they do with it once it's in there? Because, you know, they had security all around, you couldn't get there. We flew over that harbor a couple of times in the plane, and he was up there laughing and banging his leg. He said, now I know where the coal goes. And so he was sort of able to put you know, all the different pieces together. And uh, we were up in that plane for a couple hours. We buzzed over one of the big freighters out on Lake Erie. And, you know, he was a Navy intelligence officer. So the whole thing was just grand. And um, what was it? Seven, eight weeks later, uh, he was, they were flying out to Wyoming to visit my younger brother. And my dad suffered a massive stroke and he was in a hospital in Denver. And uh, that was it. But before he died, he got to see where the coal goes. He got to put together a lot of stuff, and he saw stuff from a different perspective that, uh, you know, through his incredibly rich 76-year life, he'd just never been able to see. So I think that drives so much of the joy that I get out of the work that I get to do, which is don't just settle for, you know, walking up to the construction site and looking through the hole in the plywood. You know, you want to see what's going on in the world today, Get out and talk to people like Chris Lockhead and get outside your comfort zones and look at stuff differently. And don't be afraid to experience, you know, joy and wonder and, and all the great things that, you know, this world has to offer. So thanks for letting me uh, share that little birthday story. I love it, Bob. And I love that you wanted to share that. Well, I saw that picture on Father's Day of, uh, I think, you with your mom and dad. That was pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. And I, I always, I love how um, heart-centered you are. I remember when we first met, I, for like a year, I kept saying, is this guy for real? <laughs> like, you're one of the most genuinely human people and warm people I've ever met in business. And you're, you, you just grant that to people right off the top. Um. Yeah, I've been so lucky, been so lucky in so many ways. And, uh, you know, I've incredible wife, kids siblings, my parents, God bless them, and, and all the great things that they, they uh, sort of paved the way for us. And I, I hope that, uh, you know, I just think about that. Can I be half the sort of person that my dad was? And I don't think I will be, but I'm trying to be the best I can be. So instead of, uh, you know, being crushed by a failure to live up to what I think he was, I try to do the best I can be. And I think that's the gift they gave us, which is, you know, don't hold back. As far as we know, we get, uh, we get to go this way one time. So don't leave anything uh, sitting on the bench. <laughs> and on that note, thanks, Bob. I love you. You're awesome. Love you too, Chris. Fantastic. Thanks so much. And congrats on number 53. Thank you. All right. There he is, the undeniable Bob Evans. Now, uh, is it grow time for your business? Because if it is, it's time to check out NetSuite. NetSuite wants to help you master your growth. NetSuite's order management capabilities help you streamline the entire order process, removing bottlenecks, preventing errors, and establishing a smooth flow. And who doesn't want a smooth flow? From sales quote, to order fulfillment, to invoicing, and maybe our favorite part, payment. <laughs> NetSuite's order management and billing management capabilities allow you to integrate sales, finance, and fulfillment, improving quote accuracy, eliminating billing errors, and strengthening revenue recognition. And who doesn't want strong revenue recognition? 
Now, my friends at NetSuite are offering you a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. And if you're a long-time listener to this podcast, you've heard me say this before. And uh, so why not today pick them up or take them up on their offer and go to netsuite.com slash different. NetSuite is the company that is built for and uh, built by entrepreneurial leaders. So why not check them out and get your free growth review, netsuite.com slash different. Um, if you want to send us email, you can send email to us at blackhole, all one word at lockhead.com. You can check out my, as my, uh, now 16 year old nephew calls it weak social media game. I'm on Twitter at lockhead and on Instagram at lockhead. All right. We would like to thank the amazing cloud wars live podcast with our friend and today's guest, Bob Evans. Uh, check that out wherever you get legendary podcasts. Uh, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, uh, written by Heather Clancy and myself. It's a number one Amazon bestseller. Check it out while you get a chance. A nonprofit I love, the good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org. Check them out. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And if you want to come see us in October 2019 at One Life's annual conference in beautiful Long Beach, California, go to the number one lifefullylived.org slash clockhead. Growwire.com. It's what legendary growth-oriented entrepreneurial people are, li- are listening to, reading, and uh, watching. Check out growwire.com. Now, is it time to scale your business and s- by scaling yourself? My good friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you do exactly that. So why not check out the power of a virtual assistant at bottleneck.online. That's bottleneck.online. And my dear friends at the Front Row Foundation, making a giant life difference for people facing maybe the biggest challenge, frankly, I think the biggest challenge in life, which is the potential of the end of their life. Check out frontrowfoundation.org. All right, this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that this oddcast is clearly created in a studio that does contain nuts. Teach technology. In the event of a water landing, this oddcast can be used as a flotation device. Remember, if it doesn't scare you, it's probably not legendary. Listen to George Carlin. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. Hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Doug Parker, CEO of American Airlines. Sorry, Dougie, we just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much. It means the world to me that you would invest part of your life with us. Uh, Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.